Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to October's Movies Podcast. Coming up, we look at the latest disc news, and as Halloween approaches, we look at the horror genre and give you our recommendations for the best horror films over the decades. And joining me for this special Halloween podcast are the AV Forums Movies Review Team. Tonight we have Alan, Jer, Mark, Chris and Simon. Hi guys. Hello. 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 So it is the Halloween special and uh, we're going to talk about horror movies and the whole Halloween thing a little bit later on. But first of all, it's the disc news and kicking us off this month is Alan with Star Trek. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, Star Trek, the 2009 movie, comes to Blu-ray on uh, uh, November the 16th in the UK and strangely November the 17th in the USA. So we are going to be a day ahead of our colonial cousins in getting that movie. Um, It's something that everybody's been looking forward to. We we had the big ballyhoo of the release in the cinema earlier this year, the reboot of the franchise, as you might put it. And uh, the movie's got Carl Urban, Simon Pegg, Zoe Saldana, Zachary Quinto, Chris Pine, and also directed by J.J. Abrams. And everybody was looking forward to the movie, the speculation about it coming out. And then when it did come out, there were all the different opinions about, you know, who thought it was good, who thought it was bad. At the end of the day, um, having seen it, it's it's a cracking movie. Um, it's a it's a good story, and uh, at the end of the day, I keep saying that we have uh, the characters of James T. Kirk and uh, Mr. Spock as young people, um, and it's it was great to see the actors in the roles uh, beginning to. Um, become recognisable as the, as the characters simply by the mannerisms that we had seen uh, from the actors in the TV series and it was things that we recognised and we started to feel safe again and f- feel comfortable with the characters uh, there was a, a great familiarity about it and we could see Dr McCoy um, beginning to take on the, the, the same uh, mannerisms as um, DeForest Kelly had uh, used uh, in the in the TV series. Um, it was like a coming home, I think, uh, and it, certainly the movie itself looked fantastic. The CGI effects were good, although I have to say they did look like CGI. Okay, Alan, I, I don't think anybody um, on the team has a bad word to say about this uh, this movie. Some of us were not as taken as, as others, but I think everybody enjoyed it. Uh, so, guys, you all uh, got this on pre-order? Good God, yes. Yes, yes. yeah. Fantastic film. The only let me fly an ointment for me was the slightly um, boring bad guys. Uh, very very uh, typical and, and you know, um, cliched, running around, snarling nasty lines, and uh, not having really much of a of a threat. I don't know that the threat of the galaxy is there, but I wasn't very intimidated by them. And having Eric Banner, you know, he's superb. He really could have uh, gone places with that role, but no. I mean. The the opening shot where he speaks to uh, Christopher Pike. Hi, Christopher. It's Nero. Fancy popping over a cup of coffee? You know, it's just <laughs> what what's that about? 
No, I actually loved it. I thought it was great. And the surprising thing about it was I thought it was a lot funnier than I expected it to be. Um, and genuinely in-character funny as well. It was just great fun, great entertainment. A yeah, long way this new franchise continue. They tried to bring back the uh, human relationships that they had in the TV series between Kirk, Spock and Dr. McCoy. And that worked well for me. Uh, that's the sort of thing that you would instinctively think would be missing out of a modern movie. Yeah. Yep. And I think on the on the other side of the coin there, Alan, is uh, it was also a movie that people could come into that had no uh, relationship with Star Trek at all. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And my uh, experience of Star Trek is you have to remember being the old person that I am. I remember seeing Star Trek in its first run from about 1966 or 68 or whenever it was, and then it was done to death on telly during the 70s on the BBC. And we got really fed up with it. And then it started coming out again and we started to get interested again. So we've now gone through the TV series, the movies and uh, the reboot of the movie. And we've still got the interest. Okay, so that's Star Trek. When does it hit? It hits uh, UK 16th November and America uh, November the 17th. And there's there's actually, the, the audio looks like it's going to be uh, Dolby True HD 5.1, aspect ratio 2.35 to 1. Um, supplements, there'll be an audio commentary, featurettes, nine deleted scenes, a gag reel and some trailers. And then there's a whole load of HD content like uh, Star, Starfleet Vessel Simulator, some BD Live stuff that we don't know about yet augmented reality i'm interested to see what that is and some nasa news so it should be quite a, an interesting release okay so that's one movie franchise out the way and we're going to move on to another biggie uh, harry potter and uh, his latest escapades and all the previous ones are coming to blu-ray and jar's going to tell us all about it yeah phil we've got uh, harry potter and the half-blood prince um which is coming out in blu-ray in the uk on the 7th of december and this movie picks up uh, in year six at Hogwarts and lo and behold, Voldemort, the evil Dark Lord, is um, becoming increasingly more active and uh, returning to power and uh, recruiting more um, members to his army of dead eaters. So it's up to our uh, favourite boy wizard, Harry Potter and Dumbledore to uh, continue on their the quest to... Uh, discover some of Voldemort's weaknesses. So in with regards to the uh, this movie, um, I feel as though the, the series is gradually losing steam as it's going along. Um, the books got... The books were along the same kind of manner and they kind of lost steam as well. I suppose that it's all building up towards the uh, grand finale um, in the last movie, which has actually been split into two parts. This movie um, is going to be released with a 5.1 DTS HD um, audio track and it's got a couple of additional supplements. Close up with cast and crew, a year in the life of JK Rowling, one minute drills along with a couple of other features. So this will be one I'll definitely be picking up because the previous um, HD DVD versions looked quite um, spectacular. The good news for all Potter fans as well is that Warner are going to be re-releasing the entire back catalogue as extended editions. So we're going to have an additional seven or eight minutes for every movie in the series. So I'm sure that these will just contain the deleted scenes which were available on the um, two-disc DVD releases. But, um, you know, it's an exciting um, edition nonetheless. Um, more exciting than the addition of the additional... the uh, Sorry about that, now I lost the plot. Um, more uh, more exciting than the addition of the um, additional footage is that the 5.1 EX Dolby Digital tracks, which were available on the DVD releases, 
will now be ported over into a brand new DTS HD 6.1 uh, mix, um, which should sound absolutely um, sublime. Um, unfortunately, the 6.1 mix will only be available for the theatrical length um, um, editions, which will also be available on these extended releases. I have, as I said, I have the HD DVDs of the first five movies, and um, I'm very impressed with the pick and sound quality. So, uh, and as far as I can recall, the audio on these was actually Dolby True HD and Dolby um, Plus. So it looks as though we're going to have a brand new audio mix for these. So fingers crossed we'll get a new uh, transfer as well. Um, all of these extended releases are going to also feature a brand new picture-in-picture um, -picture, uh, feature with director Chris Columbus and introductions to the extended versions uh, for Daniel Radcliffe. There's also going to be a brand new one-hour documentary included on each release, which is going to build up to give a total of eight hours over the when the full um, complement of movies are released. And we also have a 48-page booklet including as well, uh, included as well. So it looks as though the Harry Potter machine is still rolling on strong and um, there's actually going to be a Universal theme park opening soon based on the world of Hogwarts and Harry Potter. God, I wish I was J.K. Rowling. I wish I'd come up with that idea. Anyway, so guys, are we Harry Potter fans or not? Who wants to pick up on this? Well, um, I am, actually. I, I quite like... Well, I very much enjoyed the books. As Jerry said there, the... Um, they did run out of steam a bit, and particularly the sixth book, which the, this film is based upon, is one of the weakest books. Um, it concentrates more on the sort of interpersonal relationships between the kids and Harry and Dumbledore trying to find out how they can stop Voldemort. Didn't, it didn't really work as a film, I felt. It, 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 it was quite a weak film. Of course, it had the, the big, powerful ending that we was all expecting, and they, and they stuck to it quite well. They, they, they didn't really push... Malfoy, he, he, he was, had a much bigger part in the book and I felt that he was sort of pushed to one side and Snape, when he came in and done the deed, didn't have that sort of kick in the chest that you really needed to expect to really push this film forward. Um, so without that ending, the, the film itself almost petered away, which is a shame because, um, as Jarrah said there, I mean, the, the, the machine is, is pumping on with these new releases and everything coming out. Splitting the last film into two, it smacks of trying to grab more money out of the franchise because, as we know, there's no more books. So, you know, I mean, they had the opportunity of splitting earlier books, better books, particularly the fifth film. But we'll see. Um, as, as a DVD, I think it'll be fantastic. You know, as, as always, the, 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 the fifth film on, on Blu-ray was spectacular looking, spectacular sounding, really, really top-notch. Um, so this new one, I, I think, is going to be just as good. So, um, yeah. I'm going to be getting it, even despite my uh, despite my words earlier. I will be getting it. I, I think it's actually a good thing that they're splitting the last movie because it could it just gives more scope to explain a lot of the story and include a lot more of the the action as well. Because, you know, for me, um, the Goblet of Fire was one of the best movies of the Harry Potter series, and it was purely because they managed to condense the book down very very well into the movie's runtime, and they just didn't do that with the Order of Phoenix. And it didn't Absolutely. do it with the Half-Blood half -blood Prince either, yeah. I will be buying it, though. The mall. <laughs> Gotta say, I'm not going to bother with it at all. I'm kind of lucky because um, my son's not even into this, uh, which I think is probably down to me because I've weaned him on video nasties. Ha, 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 ha. And other stuff. So, um, but Harry Potter seemed to come along at a time when I was totally embracing another fantasy epic, uh, which was ongoing. Of course, that was Lord of the Rings. So mm -hmm. there just wasn't enough space in my life to... Uh, accommodate this one as well um I, I, I did begin to read the books i thought i was missing out on something quite you know you know um, revolutionary and uh 
yeah, there was a lot of good ideas in there, but it, it, I found them very um, juvenile. Of course, they're written for kids. I understand that. And uh, but the amount of adults I saw reading them on the train and on the bus, I thought, hey, it's got to be something here. It must be smutty bits and some maybe adults get a certain version of the book, but no. And when the films came out, yeah, very enjoyable and you know entertaining, but lengthy, episodic, and uh, things I normally love. But for some reason. I don't know. It just didn't do it for me, and I've kind of lost the uh, the path of the uh, where the books went, where the story went, and how the films have gone. So I'm afraid it's uh, unless my son starts pestering me for them, it's a no can do in this household. Okay, so uh, that's Harry Potter and everything that comes along with it. And uh, what was the release dates for that, Joe? We've got Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince uh, coming out in Blu-ray on the seventh of December in the UK, and the Chamber of Secrets and the Sorcerer's Stone will be out uh, on the same date as well. The other movies, I think, are going to follow uh, duly afterwards. Excellent. So we're moving on, and uh, we're going to go to Mark. Uh, Mark, tell us about New Police Story. Okie doke. Coming by way of Lionsgate Home Entertainment to the US market, we've got Jackie Chan's new police story, basically made a post around the world in 80 days. Chan returned to Hong Kong. It was his previous film hadn't done as well as he would have hoped and so returned to his roots, basically what he does best. Uh, Directed by Benny Chan, who did a heroic duo, basically an action cop thriller, plot synopsis. Action superstar Jackie Chan is a disgraced police inspector who sets out to seek revenge on the sadistic punk gang that murdered his team in this superb thriller. Uh, Pretty much standard fare in many ways, uh, fifth in the Police Stories uh, series, but it's noticeably darker. It's rated R. We've got it slated for 1080p AVC codec. Aspect ratio should be 2.4 to 1. Audio formats at the moment is slated for English DTS HD Master Audio 5.1. Now, a lot of the recent uh, Asian Blu-rays have been coming out with 7.1, but really that that's overkill. 5.1 should be adequate. So far, there's no sign of whether that it'll have the original uh, Mandarin or Cantonese tracks, so it might strictly just be a dub. Subtitles, captions, again, haven't been announced, but you'd assume that all the standards for any kind of uh, American Blu-ray will be there, English, Spanish, than the usual. Supplements is looking a little bit on the short side, just a, a making of uh, English dubbing featurette. I can't really see how they're going to get much mileage out of that. But you've got a select scene commentary with Jackie Chan, and hopefully we'll see the usual array of outtakes over the end credits. It's already been released, I believe, uh, on Blu-ray in Germany, so... This coming by way of Lionsgate. Hopefully, it'll be uh, region free. Excellent. So uh, that's new police story. And uh, moving on, and staying with uh, movie franchises, we move to Terminator Four and Chris. Hello. Yes, Terminator Four, Terminator Salvation. McGee, Charlie's Angels is McGee um, taking on one of the most hard-hitting and enjoyable sci-fi franchises of recent years. Um, uh, a truly lousy film. Before I go any further. Couldn't wait to see this, was so looking forward to it, and um, thought it was absolutely lousy in almost every department. Action was lacklustre, characters were non-existent, uh, the acting was truly awful. Yeah, wasn't very impressed with it at all. But anyway, Warner is going to bring it to, to Blu-ray later this year, um, on December the 1st in America and 23rd of November in the UK, so we're getting it a little bit earlier. Uh, now, the big thing is, it's actually a three-disc set, 
and we have an R-rated version, which is the director's cut on one of the discs. The other cut being the one that we've seen at the flicks, which is a PG-13 in the States, and a 12 here, the one that we're probably all familiar with. Uh, the third disc is a digital copy. Uh, it was a lousy film, as I've said. Um, I know I'm probably uh, in the minority by saying this, but it just, it just didn't light my fire at all. You had lots of action, but none of it particularly exciting. Yeah, Christian Bale, one of my favourite actors, one of the most intense guys in uh, making movies today, uh, playing John Connor, stepping into the uh, the boots of the future hero, uh, saviour of mankind, and it was uh, he was terrible. He just did his same old acting shtick as in the last, well, most of his movies so far, brooding, intense, and annoyingly one note. Uh, why why speak anything when you can shout and growl? You had the T-600s, you had the development of uh, what Skynet's army of Terminators were going to look like. We've seen the future war before in flashbacks from T-2 and T-1, and wow, they looked amazing. The opening of T-2, that's what you kind of expected you were going to see. Well, certainly what I expected you were going to see in this version. You were going to see hordes of um, T-800s, exoskeletons, just swarming over the um, the ruined landscape of, of future Earth, uh, ragtag Rebels fighting them off, gallant last stands, heroism aplenty. Uh, but no, no, you get a, a scattering of Terminators in this. You get Elena Bonham Carter, uh, <laughs> who I really won't discuss any further. Um, you have Sam Worthington uh, as Marcus Wright, who has a bit of a secret within him. Uh, what is he? Um, is he human? Is he android? Is he, well, who knows? But you're going to find out in this. Uh, what secret does he hold for the future of mankind? Ooh, exciting. Not. Uh, but Sam Worthington actually is quite a good find. This is a guy who's going to go on to play um, Perseus in the remake of Clash of the Titans, which we'll be seeing next year. And although my favourite actor, ex-favourite actor, was lousy in this, I thought this guy was, uh, was, was pretty good in what is, again, sadly a bit of a one-note um, bum character role. Anyway, but enough of uh, you know, my dissing the movie, because you're all probably going to get it anyway. Um, it comes to disc with a Dolby True HD 5.1. Uh, we have lots of exclusive HD content. Warner uh, is maximum movie mode. Focus points, reforging the future. The Moto Terminator. Oh yeah, this was the. Uh, <laughs> they make you know Terminator bikes, which you know strangely enough a human can actually sit on and ride. How convenient! They, they gave it a seat, and you know handlebars. Clever. There's BD Live on disc two, uh, which looks like it features things like Resist will be terminated, video archive, uh, Terminator Salvation prequel digital comic number one, um, a feature called My Commentary, which actually sounds, if that's what it's, what, you know, what I think it is, you can do your own commentary. I quite like that kind of idea. You have uh, BD Live live community screening on disc two as well. I, I do believe there's actually a lot more than that to it, but that's all I have on this press release so far. Um, I think the biggest thing about this is that it's going to be the R-rated director's cut. Exactly what differences that's going to make to the movie, I don't know. But um, I, I'm not holding out a lot of hope for it. <laughs> um, so I'm not selling this one very well, am I, folks? But I, I'm afraid that it, it kind of disappointed me uh, gravely when I saw it. And uh, I, I don't relish sitting through it all over again. Chris, so I will not be reviewing this one. Ha <laughs> ha! Uh, but yeah, I don't know what you guys think, but I'm not very impressed. 
Chris, I think you should really speak your mind about the the film. You know. I, I, yeah, I'll try not to hold back so much next time. <laughs> yeah, don't be a bit of the bush. <laughs> Well, um, in some ways, I agree with you. In other ways, um, I went in to see this with my expectations uh, extremely low, having read uh, a lot of the feedback on the forums from people that had seen it. And actually, I came out and thought it was, mm, uh, all right. Um, oh. it, it, it held, <laughs> my, it held right. my attention. Um, I, I agree. I think they went in a completely different direction than everybody thought they were going to go with it. It'd be interesting to see the director's version of it. Um if it makes any more sense, if the story's a little bit more fleshed out, I don't know. There's so many bits that just didn't add up. I mean, in an action movie, you accept that. That's a given, you know. The plot doesn't have to make sense. It, it, it genuinely doesn't. But this was so, you know, really banally written and, you know, this is the fairest we've ever been. You know, actually, no, you've been a bit further because you just planted a bomb in that wrecked car over there, didn't you? Just little snippets like that. The fact that the, uh, the Skynet HQ is hardly even guarded. Okay, some of us know there's a few more reasons than that, but you've got to be a bit more convincing than this. Um, and the most impressive thing of all, which I thought was going to be the T-600s, uh, which were the early versions, you know, we spotted them easy, you know, uh, the famous quote from uh, Kyle Reese was that because they, they didn't look very human they were just like um, a bit like Hector the robot from Saturn 3 if you remember that where he's got a, a human face just pulled on over his um, his photoreceptors and these things just look like hulking gargoyles and in design work they looked fantastic I really couldn't wait to see these and you got what? One in like a literally couple of minute long sequence he went up blowing his own leg off it was just oh, oh. Come on! Do you reckon? Do you reckon it might be a case that a lot of the uh, a lot of the T six hundred action and gore was removed to keep the rating down so that they could get more viewers? Do you know what? I'd love that to be the case. But Is somehow, that fantasy land I'm living? I don't in? think so. I don't think mm-hmm. so. I haven't. I, I mean, no, I hope I'm proved wrong. I, I hope that this version has got a, a bit more balls to it and uh, a lot more action that's coherent. And <laughs> sadly, you're not. You're not they don't want to see. Uh, Sean Connor being fleshed out any further. I just, he's just, ah, it just didn't work. Didn't work. And uh, we seem to have conveniently forgot about T3. Is it really as bad as that? No. T3's great compared to this. Very, very enjoyable film because it knows what it's doing. It's, it, it's, it's, the third, it's the third step. It probably went a step too far. We didn't really need it, but the idea was, okay, we've had the liquid metal man and we've had Arnie giving it loads. We've had Arnie turning good. Let's have a female Terminator. You can see, it was pure marketing. You could see where it was going, but it worked. It worked in, in a purely comedic sort of way, which it was hokey, but it was fun. I didn't like it at the time. I've got, got to be honest. I thought it was kind of crap at the time. But now I look back on it, and I've since seen it after watching this one, um, and enjoyed it far, far more for what it was. Do you think? So, it, do you think it was maybe the case that um, with with this one we didn't have the the whole idea of jeopardy that that, that there was something after John Connor? In this one, it was more. Well, we didn't we didn't have the Terminator, did we? We didn't have that sense of he's being chased, he's, he he has to survive type of thing. Yeah. There wasn't that rolling juggernaut momentum going on, was there? Um, they were going to get into Skynet and they were going to blow it sky high. Uh, yeah, well, that, that's just basic um, World War Two fodder, isn't it? They're just on a mission. It's a do-or-die mission. Um, I, I, don't know, I don't know if that's such a bad thing. That, that could have worked. If you had them being pursued all over again, 
it, we've seen that, we've done that ad infinitum. Um, so, I mean, basically, the concept I didn't think was too bad. I quite liked the idea of it. Sadly, it was just very badly executed. Um, and you can quite clearly see where some bits are going to be in. Um, the attempted rape sequence of the, I've forgotten their name now, but the fit bear who pilots a helicopter gunship who ends up with Sam Worthington um, in that little junkyard area. There's definitely pieces missing there, which uh, the first time I saw it, it was quite glaring. So, But again, is it going to be just character beats? Is it just going to be fleshing? I think if it is, it's fleshing out you know, the people that were actually the better ones in it. I think, I think I got off on a really bad start having it set in 1999 or whatever. When's it set? 2000 and... 11 or something can't remember 2018 2018 yeah that's that's too close to the future it's just it makes it almost instantly unbelievable if they had it they had ample opportunity to set it up like you know like 50 years 60 years in the future and mm. start off a new story with like future wars against more advanced terminators but they exactly. just took the easy way out and were lazy really good point Matt uh, because this is such a massive um, idea and concept you could go anywhere with it, but again, as you've said, like the writers are playing it safe. They're tying it into the accepted laws that we already know. And by doing so, they're restricting what they can do. Uh, you're bringing in characters, yeah, oh God, it's John Connor again. You're going to meet Kyle Reese. Oh, he's got to send him. Oh, you know, yeah, we know all this stuff. Mm. As you quite already said there, you know, it's a bigger universe than that. They could have set it fair in the future. And I just we just accept the machines are still there. There's pockets of resistance, and it's just their own little stories. You, you can do it. The World War II analogy quite works quite well. Again, like with Star Wars and the Clone Wars, a lot of people say, "Well, we know what happens." You know, the Clone Wars don't really matter because we know how it all ends. That isn't the point. And I, I'm, I'm going to try and tie this in because you know, like the Second World War, like the Clone Wars, like this, you could have umpteen variations on the theme, couldn't you? Uh, men on missions, uh, you know, last stands, whatever, skullduggery, spy missions, all sorts of things rolled into that umbrella sort of concept. And those individual stories get their own momentum, their own tension, but they don't matter to the overriding arc of the uh, the whole narrative. It do- that doesn't matter. You shouldn't try to wrap these things up. You've, I think, created such a, a massive idea. They try, They stick to trying to tie it all in. You don't need to. Think smaller, think smaller, but have bigger stories within that smaller realm. But, you know, Hollywood writers, they just, they want to put bums on seats and they want to, uh, they want to keep fans happy. They want to do all these things and still, they're going to tell a different story. They always say stuff like that. And yet, how different are these stories ever going to be? You're right. There's, there's, if you look, if you look at even all the new releases, there's nothing, there's been nothing really new and exciting in the last, the last while out in the cinema it's all like rehashes or additions to new series or yeah. remakes of foreign movies and it's just it's all getting a bit tired the franchise roller coaster and the endless remakes yeah it's it just it, it's never going to stop though is it never going to no. stop no and is that why tv is better these days there's a conversation point for the next podcast okay Ooh, so yeah. let's wrap it up on uh, on that one and uh, that's the news for this month we're going to be back in a couple of seconds to talk Halloween. Contact the AV Forums podcast. Email podcast at avforums.com. 
You're listening to the AV Podcast. Oh, worth it. Totally worth it. Okay, so this is the October podcast, and of course, uh, it's Halloween towards the end of the month, or the end of the month. So, um... Let's talk Halloween horror movies. We do it every year on the podcast. And, of course, we've got some new reviews this year. Uh, we've got Jer and Mark joining us, as well as Alan. So, let's get some views on horror movies. And uh, are there any decent horror movies left? Or are we just seeing remakes of the same old um, slashers, violence, gore, in-your-face stuff? Uh, or is there some... Uh, movies out there that that do buck the trend and and uh, cover new ground. So let's go to our horror expert to kick us off, and uh, Chris. Um, yeah, are there any new worthy horror movies being made these days? Uh, yeah, I believe there are, but they are very few and far between. And the thing is, I don't think the horror market's changed that much over the the last few decades. If you go back in, in time to the thirties, the forties, fifties. Um, all every single decade had its groundbreaking horrors. Then it had the cash-ins, it had the copies, it had the um, the rip-offs, the sequels. It even had its own remakes in those days. Uh, then they went to the go out all out to find something that would shock and horrify you. Uh, and every single generation had all of this stuff. Um, I think what we get now is because there's so many movies coming out all the time. There just seems to be so, so many remakes, um, so many uh, franchise movies. And, and there's a, I think there's a definite swing shift in, in, in some horror aspects. You're getting a lot more urbanised horror. Uh, you're getting things like uh, The Strangers, things like, oh, I forgot what it's called now, but where basically home invasion movies became a huge and quite shocking um, trend. Because the, the you know horror movies tend the nastier ones tend to mimic you know the events in real life, and we're having far more gratuitous murders and attacks and horrible situations taking place on our streets and in our homes, and of course horror movies because by their very nature try to mimic all this stuff, and you know of course this enters the old arguments of. You know, what what cave first, the chicken or the egg? Because if things happen in real life, then you make the movie sort of based around it or, you know, inspired by these events. Things like Texas Chainsaw, obviously, or, um, you know, any other kind of uh, horrific torture porn type of movie that comes out now, which there are, you know, ten a penny. And then, of course, we get crimes committed, which seem to mimic the movies themselves. So it's a kind of catch-22, no-win situation, isn't it? you know, they're still controversial, but you've always had Frankenstein. James Wells' Frankenstein was hugely controversial at the time. Um, and this and its sequel, by the Frankenstein, even more so. Then you had a, a lot of films were banned in the 30s and, and, and 40s. The UK banned almost all horror films uh, for, a, for a good length of time. Uh, and even in America, during the Second World War, you know, the horror movies were kind of taboo because they wanted uplifting things, they wanted musicals, they wanted comedies, so horror was taboo yet again. And then, of course, the advent of the 60s, uh, darker edge, uh, more, um, I don't know, shocking, in-your-face sort of uh, directors who wanted to explore the psychology of, of horror and violence. Uh, Roman Polanski, Sam Peckinpah, not a horror director, but he certainly brought a lot of horror into his movies. Uh, you know, the whole thing evolves and yet stays the same. 
you know, the horror, horror movie genre is huge. Uh, you can have any kind of story can take place within the, the horror genre. Um, but one thing that is definitely taking place now, which I know we're going to have to end up talking about, is the huge amount of you know glamour for vampires again. What is going on there? What what is it with with, with vampires? Vampires personally, you know, the whole concept really bores me now. Now that they're they're cool, hip, and trendy, you know this Twilight thing. Oh God, come on! You know I can't even class those as horror films because they well they're not are they? It's just teeny bopper. Um, fantasy romance with a, a gothic overtone well don't you think though that nowadays um horror films uh, the skill has gone out of making a horror film in as much as um in order to uh, create the fear element all the director does is cut a shot of something that looks like it's been on a barbecue for half an hour um so what I'm saying is it's relying upon the revulsion element to make people go, oh, and look away. And that's what's creating the fear. Rather than going back to the horror, the horror films of the 30s, the universal black and white horror movies, um, that I have to say, as a probably 10, 11-year-old, I stayed up at night time to watch. My mum and dad knew nothing about it. Well, back um, in the 30s? No, no, <laughs> I have to say, this was must have been in the 70s, I guess. Um, I, I would sneak through about 11 o'clock at night to watch Don't Watch Alone on Scottish television when they ran all the movies. And I would put the telly on with the sound on it, just the beep in my ear would be probably about maybe 12 inches away from it. So my mum and dad wouldn't hear it. And I was able to see all these classic horror movies. And I was able to see the great skill that went into making them the fact that they didn't have to show something horrible the fact that they could allude to it and the people's imagination did the rest of it and but, but Alan, the thing is that they, they, they were showing things though they get boundaries get pushed each time exactly so when, when you saw like in frankenstein you've actually got brain um exposed and being carried from jar to jar you're seeing skulls you're seeing dead bodies um, and yeah. stitching on a body you know, those things were considered absolutely, you know, gratuitous and horrifying. Exactly. And then if we move on into the 50s and 60s, when Hammer, became, you know, became um, demigods of, of the horror genre, uh, just the flash of, you know, very, very bright, livid blood on someone's lips, mm. um, a heaving cleavage, you know, you know um, it was all what was shamming down on a, on, a, on a buxom young wench. Yeah. That was taboo. And of course, Curse the Werewolf uh, had lots of really nasty scenes in it. A, a whipping sequence. You had um, uh, the Marquis being stabbed repeatedly. You had yeah. uh, it wasn't just implied, but you didn't see it. But there was there was rape taking place there as well. Indeed. So was, uh, but to go back to what I was saying, basically, right back in the early days, they didn't have to show something. Um, I take your point that they had brains and all that. But I think we kind of knew they were props. Um, but in the, Frank, the first Frankenstein movie, did we actually see Frankenstein kill the wee girl? Did we actually see him kill the, the woodcutter or whoever? We didn't have to see that. And then moving on to the Bela Lugosi Dracula movies, I'm not. I think all he did was pull his cloak up over his face or <laughs> round the back of the his victim, and that's all you saw. And the music did the rest. And then there'd be a, a dissolve or a, or, or a fade down, and I should say it moved on. And it was a case of 
pushing the boundaries, what, what became acceptable um, well, or, this, by the audience. This is how things have moved. I mean, yeah. look, looking at those films now, they're, they're complete models of restraint. I mean, they'll struggle to get a PG certificate, wouldn't they? Mm. Um, because, you know, they are very, very tepid and mild compared to what we, what we see now. Yeah, but my, my point is that if, if I see a horror film in the movies, in the movies these days, it's, uh, it shows something that is so uh, repulsive that I'm more worried about throwing up than I am about feeling scared. Yeah, I, I get your point, Alan. And you, you can go back to Psycho, and mm. um, there's the first time that the lead was killed halfway through the film, or not even halfway through the film. No. But did you actually ever see the knife hit her no. in the show? No, you never see the knife actually make contact you, with you the see, You see the blood going down the plug hole, but that's it. Yeah, but I it's a, it's a shocking sequence, and in fact, you know, the rest of the film struggles to to keep up with that. I was just going to say, surely it it's not that horror simply follows one route now. It, I'd say that it's stratified more that you now you have horrors that fall into the two different categories. You might have um, you look at things like The Ring. There's there's no great gore there, but it, it's a, a more classified as a psychological terror film and that yeah. kind of thing. Whereas works, now you have your kind of torture porn and that kind of stuff, which people tend to classify strictly as horror. Yeah. Whereas horror has become such a wider term now. So you can have everything from don't look now all the way through to, you know, well, driller killer and things like that. Uh, and it can all Hostile. fall in some way underneath the horror banner. Yeah. I, yeah it's, which, it's, a, it's a massive, massive umbrella now, isn't it? Which I think was the, was the point that Alan was trying to make is, where it started and where we are now is yeah. such a huge gulf. Um, but I guess, Alan, what you're asking is, um, or, or certainly the question that you're putting is, do we actually have to have that type of gore, that type of horror porn, as people call it, um, to get an audience nowadays? Or yes. should, should directors be looking at the likes of Hitchcock and, and some of the other masters from, from the bygone eras where they still scared you? I mean, American Werewolf in London still terrifies me, but it's because it's on the psychological level. It's the dream sequences. It's not the gore. But so, it is still a gory movie. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm, the thing is, I, I don't mind the gore as well. And I think, you know, you've got the market now for, for gore movies. You've got the market for psychological horror. You've got the creature feature type of movies, the transformation movies. Yeah, they're, they're kind of pigeonholed now. But you, you're still getting some good, um, how would you put it, conventional, traditional sort of horror movies getting made these days. The Orphanage was an absolute classic movie. Not particularly um, original, um, I don't think. This is the, the Spanish um, production, which I think we've all seen. I know I've I reviewed it quite heavily on the site. Um, but I thought it was an absolutely tremendous movie because, and this is a, this is a trend that you're getting now. You're getting a lot of um, tragic horrors where a kid goes missing, a kid dies, the spirits of, of dead kids which is disturbing in its own right. We don't need to see any murders taking place just to be, to be horrified and um, you know, upset by that kind of thing. But you're getting a strand of horror film now, like The Orphanage, where, and they tend to be foreign-made movies. They're not American, they're not English. Um, European movies tend to, tend to dwell on this, um, where a character goes through an absolutely traumatic odyssey and you're with them. And as well as being scared by the, the situation they find themselves in, you're actually genuinely moved by it as well. Now, that was something that I think is, is certainly um, a swing shift in, in 
horror movies because certainly in the older ones, you never really cared about anyone that much. Well, yeah, I mean, you may have done, but not to this degree. So out there, there are certainly some directors who are trying to inject character, trying to inject um, a story that's relevant and matters. And, you know, you care about where it's going to go. So, you know, everything is still there. It's, it's not that we're being swamped by... Go- I mean, gore films are still the most obviously marketed and touted movies because it, the teeny bopper market, the teen crowd always, always went for these. You know, the driving crowds of America, uh, me and probably you guys you know, who were watching videos in the 80s, we were um, going out all out to get the video nasties, weren't we? I mean, that was the thing that I, I was thriving on. I was never, never scared by any of them because you know I'd, I'd grown up on the Universal movies as Alan did on late night shows on TV so I kind of educated myself in the you know what is scary what isn't scary as far as I'm concerned and then of course I wanted to explore a bit of gore and kind of liked what I saw hey there's a poem in there somewhere and you know my own tastes evolved now I, I, I would not go out of my way to look for a gore movie, you know, just to be shocked by it because, hey, he's done that. And as I think we're all agreeing that there's nothing particularly revelatory about um, the latest, uh, it was someone being skinned alive and um, having power drills put through their face while strapped to a chair. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's been done before. It's, it's not particularly um, exciting to watch. You want a bit of attention. You want to care about someone. You're not going to be scared in any situation, any horror movie, unless you care about that character. Oh, yes. Yeah. So going, going to back to the point where we, we say to ourselves, do the directors really need to show these sort of scenes to uh, have the effect on the audience that more skilled directors have had in the past? I think the answer really is no, they don't. But in order to please the expectations of some modern audiences, they feel obliged to do so. Um, if you look at some of the uh, more scary films, where um, uh, you, you haven't seen the, the 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 horror element until later on in the picture, that's been a bit of a, a godsend to people because some of the effects weren't terribly good in the early days. Nowadays, the effects are good, um, but at the you know you, you find some of the low budget movies that that are made uh, just just to make a quick buck. The, it seems like the almost e- the easiest genre to have a basha is a, is yeah. a horror movie. Yeah, um, very definitely. Yeah, but it, it's you know you, you see this low budget thing coming along and you think I can't be bothered going to see that. You know I know I, I know what I'm expecting here, and it's not going to be what I want to see. So. Um, yeah. So has horror lost its appeal then because that um, we're now in the 21st century that a lot of these boundaries have disappeared on what you can and can't show on screen? And are we now getting desensitised to these types of movies and just not bothering with them? I mean, I've never seen Hostel. I've never seen Saw. I've yeah, no they're all, they're I've all no in- the same. They're all the same. Like, you're right. We Like, audiences are being completely desensitized to the to the material that's contained in the horror movies because with you know with the availability of the internet and sites like rotten.com the gore and the content isn't frightening anymore if you go back and look at something like poltergeist or nightmare on elm street now which were terrifying like 20 years ago they're just not frightening <laughs> anymore. <laughs> <laughs> i mean like i i personally like mark i look to 
Asian and foreign cinema to find those scares because you just don't get them in Western cinema anymore. I don't think anyway. Well, that was the point I was going to move the conversation on to next. And and is it a case that horror fans need to look away from Hollywood these days and, and go and look at Asia? I mean, we, we've had some of the, probably the scariest movies um, for the last couple of decades come out of Japan, for instance. Now, the Japanese seem to have this uh, unique ability to scare. I, I, I have to say... it's, it's a girl with a wet, dark hair halfway across <laughs> her face. Oh, but there <laughs> She's there... a perennial iconic image now, doesn't it? I, I don't I don't care, but there is nothing, nothing more scary than that scene in The Grudge when the girl comes down the sk- stairs all crackly. That is still terrifying no matter how, how many times you see it. There, there, are, there are a couple of definite classics in the horror genre that will be good no matter, you know, how old they get, like Omen and uh, The Exorcist and, you know, even Jaws to a certain extent, but... I think I think that the the directors are going to have to come up with novel material to really get audiences frightened at at that deep level that older movies were able to do a long time ago when they were believable. But now the content, you know, if you have werewolves or vampires running around, you know, people know that's in the realm of fantasy. Whereas as as you were talking about, Chris, they, um, <laughs> I'm sorry to break a tree. You- yeah. And Santa Claus isn't real no, either. There's no, there's no werewolves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but I think that's a good point that you're hitting on there. Is is the whole fantasy against the possible reality side of of the the horror genre? But I guess it, I mean what we're what we're talking about here, certainly with with what Chris has mentioned, is good direction, good setup, and and aiming to to get the audience pulled in to, to what they're watching. Now, are you getting the same type of thing with movies nowadays um, that class themselves as horror, or is it is it a case of Hollywood has, has lost touch with how to scare people? Okay, well, two examples now. Uh, both films that work extremely well as horror films, and you, you care a lot about the characters, um, which is obviously the essential thing. Um, but one is pop horror, and one is very deeply unsettling and moving and tragic horror. The tragic horror is Let the Right One In, um, Swedish uh, vampire story. Vampires again, good God. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it. Uh, I think I yeah. it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's top notch, really enjoyed it's it. It's not your conventional horror story, is it? But it is a horror film. There are certainly moments of high tension and fear, and it. It does a lot of strange things to you because it's a very disturbing story. Again, a lot of it's implied. Um, very, very fantastically um, designed massacre, uh, the poolside massacre, which is you don't even see anything really, but it's just so well done. And you know, you care about what is ostensibly the bad guys, don't you? Uh, it's a very, it's a very clever conceit. And the other end of the spectrum, uh, purely knee-jerk stuff purely done to make audiences jump, uh, spill the popcorn, and then come back and do it all over again, which again is Sam Raimi going back to his roots with Drag Me to Hell. Not a masterpiece, as all the other taglines say. A masterpiece! It certainly isn't. It's very derivative, of mainly of his own stuff. But my God, is it fun? It's, it's, I, I really, really enjoyed that movie. Um, it, it's, just, it's a non-stop thrill ride. Oh, a bit of a cliche, that isn't it? But it, it is. It, it barrels along, and the but the remarkable thing is that you care about the lead character, you know, because 
that's where it all comes in. You can do anything to to any character so long as you care about them, and and you'll buy it. You'll go along for the ride. And this is where again the good direction. Um, the, the script obviously is important, but so long as it, it it hit its marks and you've created atmosphere, horror films have to have some kind of atmosphere, whether it's cold and clinical and austere, um, like Let the Right One In, or it's bold in your face and, you know, creepily unsettling, but you've got a smile on your face, which is drag me to hell. Two ends of the same spectrum, uh, which, you know, and both of them work, both modern movies. So you've still got... You know, you've got the Hollywood, um, please everybody, you know, get the crowds in, they all buy the DVD, the Blu-ray, um, you know, uh, which is dragging me to hell. And then you've got the arty-farty one, which is that right one in, appeals to a certain market. It's foreign, it's subtitled. So, you know, you've got to have a bit of patience there, which a lot of people, a lot of the drag me to hell crowd wouldn't bother with this, but you're getting the two ends. Do you, you see what I'm saying? The, the, the two, you know, you've still got the, 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 the pop culture um, easy, fair stuff, and you've got the more intellectual, thoughtful, um, and creative, uh, imaginative stuff, which is the right one. In so, uh, but again, that ties into the old argument that are we look where are we looking for the, for the good horror films these days? Well, America came out with the Drag Me to Hell, uh, which just the two examples I'm using. Drag Me to Hell, which of course is you know please everybody, but if you want the intellectual one, the the um, original one, then you have to look to uh, Europe. <laughs> but which so, one's which one's more frightening? Which one's more frightening? Drag me to hell, without a doubt. <laughs> really? Yeah, the other one's more disturbing. Yeah, um, and, and, and they're, diff- they're different things. They're different feelings. But you have, you know, I, my, my skin certainly prickled when I'm watching let, let the right one in. Um, there are certain sequences in that, and it's not just the sequences though. The, the actual, you know, killings or the uh, the moments of, of tension. It's the overall story. It's going to a very dark place. It I, starts I, off pretty dark already, you know. It's, you know, it, it's edgy, and as I said before, what it does to you, it's corrupting you because you're all of a sudden, you know, you're vouching for the bad guy. I mean, I think if, you, if you've seen it, you'll you'll know what I'm getting at because there's one poor guy on that very um, depressing housing estate. He loses his best friend. He loses his wife, and he then goes to take his revenge on what what killed you know his best friend and his wife. He's done nothing wrong, but you want but because he's going to attack you know the star of the movie who we've come to love and appreciate. We want him to die. That's got to be wrong, hasn't it? So all of a sudden we've become complicit in you know the evil one's deeds, <laughs> which I, I think is a. It's great. It's a, it's a great conceit to do. You know, it's it's changed our opinions. It's changed our outlook on stuff. And, you know, we've become corrupted. I, I like I like that. It's clever stuff. Okay, so, so let's move the conversation on and um, let's start giving some recommendations um, for our listeners out there who maybe want to uh, either look at some old-time horror and uh, enjoy the nostalgic uh, sense of of being frightened up until where we are now. So, um, guys, let's go back in time and uh, let's think of some classics. Um, uh, maybe get your recommendations. And so we're talking about old timers. Let's go to Alan first. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, one that springs to mind uh, for, for me uh, is the birds. Uh, there aren't too many hor- horrible sequences in it, although you do see somebody getting their eyes pecked out, I think. Um, but uh, that, I, I remember seeing that movie as a wee boy and um, it was on the television at the time and uh, I certainly gave the budget a bit more respect after seeing that movie. Um, <laughs> it, it was very, uh, it was tense, it was scary and the, these Blooming birds kept appearing from nowhere, and it was one of these things that I got to the end of, and I went, oh. <laughs> you know, you're relieved it was all over. It was a tense, scary movie for me. Um, well, one of the one of the best apocalyptic endings as well. Yeah, and there was no explanation either, really. You know, oh. It was all okay, up up to you to guess what caused it. Um, but that kind of thing, and as I as I mentioned, uh, Carrie, I, I uh, hold very very high respect for because of the skill of the the way the bumps are put into that film and the final one particularly yeah so some good uh some good suggestions there alan um pick up on the hitchcock thing it, it is amazing the talent that that guy had going back all those years and and there's still a lot of directors in hollywood that just haven't got a patch on the guy when it comes to Exactly, uh, setting up and and actually getting the the audience involved. Another one uh, we'll mention here is is obviously Psycho. That was probably one of the first sort of psychological horror to make it into mainstream American cinema. Mm-hmm. That really T- did. taking its uh, inspiration also from the same um, Ed Gein um, cannibal saga that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was loosely based on as well. Yeah, so a lot of people don't seem to realise. Yeah, Psycho is a tremendous movie, but I actually prefer Psycho too. That, that actually created more of an atmosphere of genuine fear and yet being cosy at the same time. And again, that did something bizarre because you, know, you, you now knew that um, Norman, by the end of the first movie, obviously, you know, Norman's been doing it all and, you know, he's obviously gone completely doolally. Uh, but then he gets rehabilitated and he comes back home for Psycho 2 and the murders begin again and someone's setting him up and he's losing his marbles all over again. So... It's clever because he's a, he's a murderer, but now you're siding with him. Okay. <laughs> I, just, I, lo- I love this. I love, I love the way it twists things around. Good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, so uh, let's wrap things up. Um, for movies that we think changed the genre of horror, and if you're interested in the history of uh, cinema and horror, uh, it might be worthwhile going back and having a look at some of these. Um, I think most of them are on DVD and some of them on Blu-ray. So we're going to kick things off with Simon. Simon, we're going all the way back in time with you. We are right back to the very, very earliest of cinema, 1921-22, which is probably my most favourite film of all time, is Nosferatu, uh, Manal's seminal um, horror-defining film. Um, Based on Dracula, of course, we all know that, hopefully we all know the story behind it. Um, It is uh, essentially Dracula changed name to Count Orlok. Um, Everything that you can see in a horror film today, or certainly throughout time, can be traced back to Nosferatu. Um, shadows on the wall, the the general horrific nature of the beast, the the, the terrible vampire, um, the scares, the, the psychological horror of the, of the rats invading the town. Um, it's all there, and if you you cannot define horror without talking about Nosferatu. There were others, of course. There was a Phantom Carriage, the Golem, and, and uh, uh, Salom the Bust, and um, 
uh, Cabinet of Dr. Calgary, all of which um, in, in themselves define horror in the very, very early stages of the silent cinema. But without a doubt, I think you're going to have to agree with me that Nostradamus was the starting point of horror as we know it today. Of course, Chris was going to talk a little bit later about how it developed, but there it is at the beginning, Nosferatu, the first, the original, the best. <laughs> and of course, it introduced um, a heroine in Jeopardy as well. Absolutely. Which became one of the absolute hallmarks still today of the horror genre at large. Best version you can get is the Eureka version, um, two disc, um, with everything reinstated with the original score as well. You can't, it doesn't get any better than that. Well, yeah, what happened, because um, Nosferatu certainly um, set the ball rolling, although it was a film that was largely um, considered arthouse and ignored by a, a lot of people on both sides of the, of the pond. Um, but, you know, it, it did set certain feelings, certain trend in motion. And what is officially sort of recognised as the first bona fide made as a horror film to be a horror film, to horrify and to set things, you know, further on, was another uh, literary adaption, uh, with this time an official literary adaption of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, when Brith James Whale um, took one uh, William Henry Pratt, also known as Boris Karloff, put him into Asphalter's boots, um, put electrodes in his neck, sewed some wrong, ill-fitting hands onto him and gave him, you know, very ill-fitting clothes and brought him back to life and set him on a rampage um, across the black and white Universal Backlot studio sets. Um, and history was certainly made there because you had a monster, you had uh, mad scientists, you had castles on tops of mountains, misty sets, thunder, lightning, um, science, a man playing God, a monster created... You know, from a cadaver, um, and you know, rampaging villagers out to, out for revenge, wielding torches and pickaxes, pickaxes, pitchforks, and stuff like. And you know, the, the whole trend for what would then take over for the next few decades and be remade and re be remade again and again and again. Frankenstein was the one. It also inspired a far greater sequel in Bride of Frankenstein. Then you had. Todd Browning doing Dracula. Uh, now, again, unlike Nosferatu, this is an official um, adaptation, although not of the book, but of the stage play. Bela Lugosi, another horror icon. Again, women in jeopardy, castles, bats, cobwebs, putting the bite on people. And you now brought in the valiant um, Van Helsing. So you had, you set up the dynamic where you had the bad guy, you had um, a threat, you had the heroes out to pursue him. This, again, was a trend that would carry on throughout the next few decades um, of, of, of horror movie making. Um, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein were certainly absolute classics of the genre. Dracula, recognised as a classic, but not in the same league at all. But it was still very, very influential and a huge um, you know, shot in the arm for what would then become you know, the vast and ongoing vampire subgenre. Well, in the 60s, we had the, the continuation of the uh, monster movies with the Hammer films. But then there was a real change when we moved on to a psychological horror film. And the one I have in mind is 1968's uh, Rosemary's Baby, starring Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes as the couple who um, uh, may well be... Uh, 
bringing up the child of the devil. Um, it's, it's all in the mind. It, it may be in the mind of Mia Farrow's character. Um, it may not be. She might be going mad. Uh, she certainly becomes pregnant and the couple next door seem awfully interested and uh, it's all alluded to, all hinted at and very little is shown and that is very scary. Um, that's when I believe things really took a change. Yeah, um, Rosie's Baby was a hugely um, popular, successful and influential movie but I think the 60s um, <laughs> unleashed something far more influential far more pivotal in the horror genre when a certain young independent filmmaker called George A. Romero uh, again brought the undead back to life and set them on a mission to chow down on the, uh, the screaming living uh, holed up in a farmhouse in the seminal Night of the Living Dead. Uh, this brought graphic gore into public consciousness in the horror genre in a way that hadn't been seen before. It also uh, it, it broke taboos by having a black hero um, in a you know a very race torn uh, United States at the time. Um, it it was, had a very nihilistic ending, which was the start of the seventies. Would have nihilistic endings you know, almost all the way through in every genre: downbeat, cynical. Um, wars were happening all over the place. Vietnam was happening. They were seeing atrocities on TV. Night of the Living Dead actually took. The sensibilities of uh, a, a beginning to be desensitized public and put it into a fantasy movie. People came out of it shocked, um, but this was this was now the world they were living in. Perhaps not zombies knocking at the door, but there were certainly riots, uh, racial tension, and horrific news footage on TV. It took the cusp of the social situation at the time and it drove it into the cinemas, and it created an entire avalanche of new horror movies gore was now in um, you didn't have to survive the ending you know you, there was no happy endings anymore this was a huge a huge groundbreaker and of course chris uh, moving on from that decade to the next as you've already hinted at uh, we've probably got uh, another two huge movies that really changed the face of horror then with the te texas chainsaw massacre and then halloween yeah Exactly. Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, came out of nowhere and blew everybody away. Again, very small, independent movie. Graphic, actually, surprisingly, not that graphic. But that's not the feeling you have when you're watching it. It's up. You you think you're seeing untold atrocities being committed. You're horrified. Your stomach churned. You want to get out of the cinema, but you can't take your eyes off that screen. It is absolutely, uh, it puts its hand right inside your guts and does not let go. Tremendous movie. Surprisingly well acted as well for a film that has no actual stars in it. Um, it again, it's guerrilla filmmaking. It's, I was saying about nihilistic endings. In a way, you could say this one actually does have a happy ending because a certain person does get away. But, you know, the evil has not been eradicated. The evil's gonna go gonna go on. And what this was saying, again, taking taking it a bit further from like Living Dead, where it was saying the horror is at your front door, you know, it, it isn't in a Transylvanian castle, it's not up in the mountains, you know, it's right here in your hometown. This was middle America. Um, you know, and Americas have a American people have a deep seated fear of their rural um, cousins um, and deliverance and a lot of other movies, Southern Comfort. Um, a lot of films tend to like you know back this theory up 
but Texas Chainsaw Massacre really, you know, put the sore into it, didn't it? Um, and galvanised the people and became, you know, an absolute, became iconic for, for such horrible people doing such wicked deeds. You know, you could buy action figures off them, you know, the people were buying T-shirts with Leatherface on them. And that was in the 70s. That, was, that wasn't now. That was in the 70s when the film would come out, shocked everybody and, you know, <laughs> again, pushed the boundaries of physical violence that you see in movies. And again, you mentioned um, Halloween, John Carpenter. There's a trend here because now you're seeing young independent filmmakers coming in. They've got no studio backing. They've they, they've got a love of their genre, a love of what of their craft, but they're they're cutting their teeth. And you know they've got obvious talent. John Carpenter comes in. He made, he's only got a couple of very small movies under his belt before then. Well, obviously the uh, the cult classic Muscles on Precinct 13, the comedy of Dark Star, and then he makes. Halloween, Michael Myers, you know, from the babysitter killers, babysitter killer to uh, the Halloween cha- title change, and he created what became, well, hugely known as a stalk and slash genre. Arguably, the Italians had sort of begun this sort of thing in the 60s, but again, those films weren't seen you know, very much outside of their, their own country. But Halloween was an absolute, you know, the groundswell was, it was amazing. Massive, massive success. For a long time, it was the most independent, most successful independent movie ever made, wasn't it? And you know, it's its repercussions are still being felt now. You've got Rob Zombie remade it. He then went on to remake the the first sequel to Halloween as well. You know, it, it's Michael Myers is obviously never going to die. So all of a sudden, you have masked killers wielding great big butcher knives terrorising young ladies again. It harkens back to the 30s and Nosferatu in the 20s. A woman in jeopardy is always going to be galvanistic. It's always going to get you going. It's always going to frighten you. So, And that's what Halloween does. And, you know, it, it's still doing it now. And then when we move into the 80s, guys, um, and again, uh, Chris, the same director, uh, and, and The Thing, and it's still one of these movies that, you know, oh, we recommend thing. everybody goes and buys. Well, the thing, if you went back to the 1950s and we said, what was the influential movie then? The Thing from Another World would certainly be one of the influential movies. John Carpenter, again, now he's getting he's getting far more adventurous. He's got a studio back in now. He's got Universal back in him. Um, he goes back to the original story that was written back in the 1930s, I think it was, or, or 40s, which was a, a short story called Who Goes There, about an Antarctic research base, American research team there encountering an alien. In the original story, it's a shapeshifter which mutates and becomes one of them. You have to hunt it down amongst their own crowd. And of course, 1950s, the movie, they couldn't show that kind of thing, so it just became a humanoid vegetable. Uh, but it's still a great movie. So he takes that, a film he loved when he was a kid, remakes it, follows the original template of the story, a, a groundbreaking story in a way, because you had an all-male cast, you had no, one of the most bleakest narratives you could ever imagine. You can trust no one. The hero, is he a hero? Is he a thing? You just don't know. But what did it do as well? It brought in the most audacious and stomach-churning prosthetic and animatronic special effects, well, you know, that you could ever see. They're still regarded, especially by myself, as absolute unparalleled classics. You know, the dog turning itself inside out, um, heads, ah, oh, <laughs> The poor guy who has a heart attack and then his head tears itself off his body and crawls across the floor. Oh, it's, it's absolutely amazing stuff. Of course, you know, the repercussions of that particular movie weren't felt until quite a bit afterwards because 
the film came out and flopped at the cinema. But why did it flop? Because E.T. came out at the same time. And they had a cute, cuddly, looks like a turd if you ask me, um, little extraterrestrial who everyone wants to love and cherish and just send him home to his family. It's still a great film, don't get me wrong. But then you have the nasty critic which can turn you inside out and become you, assimilate you. The loss of identity, very frightening concept. Um, a very highbrow concept as well. It's a very literate script for the thing. Um, but it gets dwarfed because of the happiness angle of E.T. But the repercussion of the film, the special effects, the groundswell that was created on home video afterwards, it became a massive, massive cult. I think uh, Chris just mentioning there special effects. We'll have to mention the uh, American Werewolf there when you're talking about the uh, you know special effects coming in and in that era and time and really adding something to what was available in the horror genre because some of the effects of the American Werewolf are are some of my most memorable anyway from any car, uh, horror movie available. Yeah, can't argue with that. Uh, American Werewolf again. Another seminal movie. And I think what, what they did with this one, because not only have you got the fantastic gore effects, the transformation, which is still revelatory even today when you watch it, uh, it straddled the horror with comedy. It's a horror film that actually horrifies and frightens you. It's also a comedy that actually makes you laugh out loud. And yet there's bits of slapstick in there, or splatstick, you could say. Um, and the two combine. Now that, you know, in the history of, of, of horror films, a lot of horror films are unintentionally hilarious. Um, but to actually make the two concepts work together, very difficult thing to pull off. John Landis did it with, you know, surprising aplomb. Absolutely um, a, a, another great trendsetter. The, I mean, the Transformation movie. And it's still one of those movies that absolutely terrifies me. With the dream, dream sequences and uh, oh, yeah. the, that whole side of things. And, uh, you know, I was about eight or nine when I... And when I put the Betamax tape in, the parents had gone out to the, gone out to get the weekly shop, and I sat there and uh, had nightmares for months afterwards. But never mind. So, uh, yeah, we're moving on. We're getting more advanced with the special effects. I still think American Werewolf in London. Uh, some of those effects haven't been better. They've tried to do it with CGI, but there's just something about that, the, the way that they've, they've done that with the stop motion, that it it just feels a bit more earthly, doesn't it, Alan? Yeah, I would say so. Um, using the prosthetic effects as well, and just having the sense to have the werewolf uh, as it's running through London, simply focused on the the front, the head and front quarters, um, cropping out of the shot. The fact that somebody's pushing it along like a wheelbarrow, um, you know, means that you don't have to spend millions on um, CGI effects. Uh, you can get away with it by the the old, more organic method. And it actually works, and it's more believable. And these sort of things are all operated by bicycle cables too. Um, Basic technology, but sometimes more scary. Plus you have the the benefit of the people who are acting with the prosthetic, the the puppet, the special effect. It's actually there, so their reactions to it are real. You know, and you pick up on that, you perceive that. A CG thing put in afterwards. There's something about it which you always know. You know they're not seeing that. They're seeing you know, a golf ball or a tennis ball on a stick, and they're reacting to someone holding it and saying, "Look up there! You're seeing a massive monster with big claws and big jaws." Yeah. Um, and when it's actually really there, no matter how fake it may be, they're still seeing. Well, in this case, a werewolf. <laughs> and, and and of course, you pick up on a very valid point. We'll go back to Alien. Because that's what Ridley Scott did on set. He didn't tell anybody what was going to happen yeah. when when that thing bursts out uh, of the chest. 
And because they didn't know what was going on and because it was so well done, the, the actual reactions that you see on screen are the first take. Yeah. Poor old Veronica Cartwright says uh, Lambeth gets all the blood in her face in the, fir- the very first take and her reaction is, well, it's there on camera. It, it, she's not happy, is she? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's leave the 70s behind. Uh, sorry, let's leave the 80s behind and we'll move on to the 90s. And there were a couple of things happening in horror cinema at that time. Uh, I guess the whole slasher movie had kind of died away. We were sick of seeing uh, young uh, teenage girls running about getting uh, all cut up and, and all sorts but Mark there was a movie came along in that decade which revitalised the genre again yeah um, Scream uh, Wes Craven brilliantly going back to the horror genre basically reinvented it or at least gave it a decent shot in the arm for at least a, another decade um, basically taking all the, the standard formula of a teen slasher movie but allowing it a bit more of a postmodern script it, it was it was uh, self-knowing it it, it it was clear that it was um, a slasher movie and that various characters were simply uh, archetypes of the genre but within there he's weaved quite a nice little whodunit and uh, it Unfortunately, due to its its nature of being successful in, in poking fun at the formula that was already laid down by Hollywood at the time, in fact, uh, was much copied and became a formula in itself. So you could arguably say he kind of shot himself in the foot there. But I suppose mimicry is the best form of flattery or whatever. And of course, uh, for any film fans or anybody that's interested in the history of film, um, he really does poke fun at his original movie, which was Nightmare on Elm Street. And uh, there's lots and lots and lots of cues in Scream, which which hark back to the original slasher. Oh, definitely. It's as I say, it's it's one of those films that it you know I hate the phrase it works on two levels, but it, it really does. You can you can watch it from the a plain straightforward young teens dying, or you can watch it knowing what the the output of the man uh, directing it was knowing what films he's made beforehand and where all the little cues are. And it's it's an incredibly intelligent film and and probably gets overlooked sometimes in the the horror field simply because it, it was so knowing. But uh, along the lines of you know the likes of Evil Dead Two and the like, um, there there is room for a little bit of fun to be made of the genre in in general. And, of course, he did the cardinal thing with this movie, the cardinal sin, which was, and nobody was expecting it when, when they sat down to watch it, he kills off Drew Barrymore, who you think is going to be the star of the whole thing, in the first scene. Good riddance. Harking yes. back to Psycho there, you could say. Yeah, as I say, it it it, it was a masterstroke. It, it was a nice little way of pulling the rug out from under everyone. Again, he he's basically said, here's the laid-down formula that Hollywood has given you over numerous years and you know he was partially responsible for as well um and basically said here's the the face on the poster right now she's dead so from that moment on all bets are off and so it really was a nice way of you know putting in a, a bit of a shot in the arm for the for the teen slasher genre and that opening sequence is terrifying genuinely terrifying you're on the oh, edge yeah. of your seat the whole time Okay, so, um, yeah, Scream was just one of those movies that gave horror a good shot in the arm, so pick that up if you haven't seen it. 
And uh, obviously, if you're a movie fan, you're going to get all the references in there. And uh, moving on to one film in the 90s, which really, it, it divided people's opinions, but it really did um, give another impetus to the, to the whole horror genre. And that was The Blair Witch Project, uh, Joe. Yeah, I have to say now, um, the, the the Blair Witch really was a movie for me that arrived at, at a time of stagnation in the horror market and really introduced something completely new. It it used the internet as a tool to build the hype. And I remember at the time, there was, you know, lots of people were in two minds whether or not the footage found was real. And of course, once you, you know, read deeper into the subject material, you realized it was all a, an elaborate hoax to kind of um, promote the movie. But I, I, I went to see it not knowing a whole lot about the content. And I found it very, very frightening, especially the the last scene when when your man, I think his name is Mike, is standing in the corner facing the corner and you can see the little baby handprints on the wall and and you know you know that the Blair Witch has got them and that they're all going to die and it really it really was masterful in 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 the way that the whole package was put together and and if you if you went to the movie with an open mind and didn't really know what you were going to see I guarantee you you would have been uh, you would have been very frightened by it so I did I enjoyed the Blair Witch and there was there was a couple of other movies as well that came out around the year 2000 which I think we should mention one being Final Destination and the other being Saw which which I I wasn't a great fan of Final Destination. I enjoyed the first couple of Saw movies, but I felt as though that they added something to the horror package and took it into a new direction, probably in, in, in a direction that a lot of people didn't really like and that it kind of went towards the, the torture porn side of things. But Saw definitely did add a cerebral element, which which again added to the horror aspect of those movies. And of course, Joe, late 90s, we're looking at The Ring as well, which made the transition from Asia to over to the States. We we are, we are. And there's, 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 there's three movies, like, as, as I said, you know, we, we're, we're, we're hurtling towards, you know, the torture, the torture porn uh, genre. And I feel as though a lot of a lot of the genres have been done to death. So when you move when you move away from Western cinema and look at what the Asian and other markets have to offer, there is some very um, worthwhile horror movies in there. The Ring being one of those original movies that broke the mold and introduced fear back into the movies. The Grudge followed on. Again, I found personally, I found the grudge more frightening, and I actually saw that before the ring. And the last, uh, the last um, foreign language film that I mentioned would be uh, one that we mentioned before, and that's uh, REC, which again, frightening, very, very frightening. And I think we we have to give, if we're talking about horror movies in the uh, in the, in the kind of uh, two thousand era, I think we got to give honourable mentions to um, the others. Twenty eight days later. The Descent, which is one of my all-time favourite horror movies, and Wolf Creek, which again, where, you know, added something to the genre. Yep, so that's our roundup, basically, of the decades, and uh, our suggestions that you go uh, and scare yourself uh, this Halloween, so get them on DVD or Blu-ray. Um, I guess they're all available there, guys. I, I can't think of any of them that I haven't seen on either format. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, they're all out. Excellent. So uh, that's going to wrap up our podcast for this month. Uh, so do have a good Halloween. Uh, scare yourself senseless. Uh, then uh, get out and get some of those movies. And if you have any recommendations that you would like to add to what we've uh, discussed in this podcast, then please go along to the podcast forum and uh, add your suggestions under this listing. 
And uh, all I have to do now is thank the AV Forums uh, Movies Reviewers. So we had Alan, Jer, Mark, Chris and Simon. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Happy Halloween. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening and we will see you again next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.